Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, James Blitz. On the show this week, we're in the Middle East once again, first of all, with the Syrian government and its escalation in force against protesters. Protest numbers do appear to have been going down, but what activists say is that in the cities that are occupied by the military, with tanks and soldiers and checkpoints and snipers on roofs, of course people are not coming out. And then to Pakistan, where ructions are continuing over the U.S. operation to capture and kill Osama bin Laden. This is, in international terms, a huge big embarrassment that bin Laden was found in a city which is supposedly the military's hometown, the first stop for military officers heading into the army. And finally, we are going to Germany, where the Chancellor Angela Merkel has this week given the green light for the Italian Mario Draghi to become the next president of the European Central Bank. She wanted to get the conservative German media and some dissidents in the ranks of her own party used to the idea that really Mr Draghi was the only possible alternative before she finally showed her hand. But first to Syria and the increasing force being used by Bashar al-Assad's government to contain the rebel uprising which has been gathering pace over the past seven weeks. Joining me on the line now from Beirut is our correspondent Abigail Fielding-Smith who's been monitoring the situation in Syria from there. Abigail, the crackdown by the Assad regime continues this week. There's a slight sense, I think, towards the end of the week that they're getting their act together and they're being more effective and that the uprising is a bit on the back foot. Is that broadly right or not? It's hard to verify any exact details with international media, mostly denied access to Syria. Uh, Certainly protest numbers do appear to have been going down, but what activists say is that in the cities and towns that are occupied by the military, with tanks and soldiers and checkpoints and by all some accounts snipers on roofs, of course people are not coming out. There's some question marks over how effectively they really have clumped it out. How long can you carry on occupying uh, for large cities in a country? Is there any sense that the regime is at all phased by the European Union sanctions that are being drawn up? I mean, they target the regime, but obviously they don't affect President Assad. What is the thinking there? Well, analysts say that at the moment the regime is so focused on its own survival. Whilst it's possible that some of the officials targeted do have assets in Europe, at the moment that's just not something they're thinking about. And certainly the sanctions that we've seen so far are not enough to make them rethink or change their behaviour. What's your guess then, Abigail? Do you think the worst is over for the Assad regime, or do you still think from where you are in Beirut, and it's difficult for foreign reporters, obviously, who don't have access to the country, but do you think the uprising could gain some new momentum in the next few weeks? It's hard to see how it's going to gain new momentum with this kind of scale of military crackdown going on. But what some analysts say is that all they really have to do is to find a way to continue, which they have been, and it'd be interesting to see what happens this Friday. They sap legitimacy, morale from, from the regime, and also, you know, run 
the risk of bringing the country to economic collapse as there's reports of capital flight and investment projects on hold. So I don't think we can say that the Assad regime are out of the water yet at all. But at the same time, it is hard to see how the protests can gather momentum in the current circumstances. Abigail, thank you very much. And now we're going to Pakistan, where the government has this week been taking action to try and work out why there were so many intelligence and military failures over Osama bin Laden. Not only the fact that the al-Qaeda leader was inside the country, but also that the Pakistani military failed to stop or know about the US action to capture and kill him. On the line is Farhan Bahari, our correspondent in Islamabad, and with me in the studio is David Gardner, the FT's international affairs editor. Can I come to you first, Farhan? The Pakistani Prime Minister Yusuf Raza Gilani has ordered this inquiry to take place into the US action over bin Laden. What's going on there? Is he seriously concerned about Pakistani failures to stop that happening, or is this just playing to a domestic audience? I think anyone in Prime Minister Gilani's shoes right now would be up against a very, very difficult balancing act. On the one hand, this is, in international terms, a huge, big embarrassment that bin Laden was found in a city which is supposedly the military's hometown, the first stop for military officers heading into the army. But on the other hand, he also has to reconcile himself with the domestic audience, with lots of people criticizing the government for not having enough of a defense to prevent this from happening. And therefore, he's walking an extremely difficult tightrope. David, here in London, how do you see things? Is, is the pressure on Gilani and the Pakistani leadership that bin Laden was found so close to Islamabad and inside Pakistan, or is it the failure to stop the U.S. action happening? What's the hot issue, do you think, there? Farhan's mentioned all the domestic pressures inside Pakistan, but looked at from the outside, it is possibly the single clearest incident pointing to the links between elements in the military and intelligence establishment in Pakistan and jihadi networks, which we know exist. But we know that there are links between particularly lethal groups in Pakistan operating into Afghanistan and elsewhere, such as the Haqqani network in North Waziristan, uh, Lashkar-e-Taiba, the organization responsible for the uh, Mumbai attacks in November a couple of years back. So this is a major issue. There are the beginnings of signs that there is movement on this. I mean, Gilani's ordering of an inquiry into an intelligence failure is one of them. But I think the US is sending signals too. They're adding people to their most wanted list, such as Badruddin Haqqani, the son of the founder of that network. That's just in the last day or so. I think they're sending signals that these networks, which cause perhaps even the predominance of US casualties inside Afghanistan, need to be dealt with. But they know at the same time that they can't do that alone and that they require the cooperation of the Pakistanis. So it's a very difficult, as Farhan was pointing out, balancing act not only inside but from outside Pakistan. Farhan, in Islamabad, the the US ambassador has been summoned by the Pakistani authorities over the, the raid that took place. Is there any risk that there is going to be some damage done to U.S.-Pakistani relations in the long term as a result of all this? 
Interestingly, this has happened just a day ahead of the joint session of Parliament that Ambassador Cameron Munter has been summoned to the Foreign Ministry and handed over a protest note over the U.S. attack on Osama bin Laden's compound. I think what the Pakistani government is trying to demonstrate is really to put forward a sense of nationalism, but this is more so, I think, for the consumption of the domestic audience. In a few days from now, we also expect Senator John Kerry to visit Pakistan. Senator Kerry is somebody who enjoys tremendous access to the top leaders of the military, which is very important in all of this, and of course, the civilian leaders. This demonstrates that the U.S. is keeping all its channels open to the top leaders of Pakistan and trying to demonstrate, on the one hand, the U.S. Is, is very keen that the Pakistanis take this episode very seriously and start changing course, but at the same time also to demonstrate that the U.S. is nowhere near thinking of even beginning to abandon Pakistan as an ally in this region. Farhan in Islamabad and David here in the studio, thank you very much. And finally, let's move to Germany. The big news this week is that Angela Merkel, after a certain amount of humming and hawing, has given the green light for Mario Draghi, the Italian central bank governor, to become the next president of the European Central Bank, a decision that should be taken in his favour very soon. Joining me on the line is our Berlin bureau chief, Quentin Peel. Quentin, why has she taken so long to come to this view? Well, I think partly it's very much in her character. She doesn't like to be rushed in these things. She says, I only take decisions when they need to be taken. I'm not just going to respond to the, if you like, the agenda of the markets or the agenda of the media in making up my mind. But the truth is, she did make up her mind on this, as far as I know, several weeks ago. She knew she hadn't got an alternative candidate, and there were political reasons for dragging her feet. She wanted to, if you like, get the conservative German media and some dissidents in the ranks of her own party used to the idea that really Mr. Draghi was the only possible alternative before she finally showed her hand. On that point, what is the mood then in Germany on on Mario Draghi? Because his confirmation is now pretty well assured. And there has been quite a lot of negative press comment, particularly by Bilt in the past over the fact that he's an Italian. I mean, does he have a, a fairly comfortable run now when he gets the job? Or is there still going to be a lot of questioning in Germany? I think he's going to have a pretty comfortable run now. Built the very rather nationalist, conservative and screaming headline newspaper, actually stood on its head a couple of weeks ago and said, well, actually, maybe he's the most German of the lot. I think they had their arms twisted very hard, and that was part of the whole process here in Germany. Back in the German Bundestag, there's never been quite as much opposition to Mr. Draghi as perhaps they feared. And I think that people have realized all along that the best thing for Germany in the European Central Bank is to have a non-German who behaves like a German. And that really seems to be what Mr. Draghi is like. Yes, indeed. More generally, what is the situation now politically for Angela Merkel? She's had some bad regional election results in the last few weeks. I mean, where do things stand with the coalition, particularly with the FDP, who, like the British Liberal Democrats, seem to be going through a truly appalling time at the moment? That's right. I mean, her problem is primarily that her partner, the FDP, the junior partner in the coalition, is so weak. Its support collapsed 
from about nearly 15% at the last general election to under 5% today. And what that means for Mrs. Merkel is she doesn't have a partner with whom she can form a centre-right government. So the only alternatives, both at state level and at national level, are to either have a grand coalition with the centre-left Social Democrats, or to do what to her is still unthinkable, do a deal with the Greens, who are a very different party culturally, if you like, very environmentalist, but with a strong pacifist wing. And she doesn't like that thought at all. She calls an alliance with the Greens complete fantasy. But if the free Democrats remain as weak as they are, she'll have no choice. That certainly would be stretching things. I mean, the Christian Democrats and the Greens coming together. Just finally, the position of Guido Vestavella as foreign minister, they're, they're coming up to their conference this weekend and things are going, as you say, pretty badly. I mean, is, is he in place in that job or is he under pressure now? He is under pressure. Now, the deal he's done is that he's going to give up the party leadership this weekend, but as long as he could stay foreign minister. And there are a lot of people in his own party who are very unhappy about that. Nobody thinks he's a very good foreign minister, at least unofficially. Officially, they say he's fine. And I think there's going to be quite a backlash at the party conference to actually him keeping the job. I suspect he's going to survive, but it's not going to be pleasant. Quentin, many thanks. And that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Abigail Fielding-Smith in Beirut, to Farhan Bahari in Islamabad, to David Gardner in London, and to Quentin Peel in Berlin. World Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Hope you can join us next week. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.